Philippians chapter 4, I'm going to finish the journey today, and after we're done, if you want, you can have one of these, if you're quick. So, uh, so brother-in-law sent me these whenever he found out that we were going through Philippians, it's just a little journal of Philippians, got text in it, got some nice calligraphy and blank pages for you to scribble on, so if any of you want to take a run through Philippians again and take one of those. You're welcome to Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to read from 14 to 20, and then we'll finish off the rest of it when we get there. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more will be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So this letter to the Philippians is, remember, there are two sorts of uh, structures that, that are going on here. Paul is writing a letter of friendship, which was a commonly known letter style in the ancient world, and also a letter of moral exhortation. Bring forth examples, mainly Jesus, but also himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus as people who can be followed in terms of how they live. And he is also writing this letter of friendship. And I'm maybe, I'm pretty sure I mentioned in one of the earlier messages that friendship in the ancient world was almost like a contractual thing. It wasn't just a couple of mates who supported the same football team, enjoyed the same type of coffee, liked to hang out. It was more than that. It was, there was a sense of obligation to one another, an expectation that you would look after each other whenever you are in need. And that you would reciprocate. In other words, if, if if I was in this sort of relationship with you and you helped me out, then there's an expectation that I would also return that favor to you whenever you are in need. And this letter is, is based on that type of friendship, which was the sort of relationship that Paul had with the church at Philippi. He loved them and they were very generous. He boasted about them to other churches. Here he writes to the Corinthians. And he's probably, the more I get to know Paul, the more I think sometimes there's a wee sparkle in his eye. His tongue is maybe in his cheek. He is quite sarcastic at times. And I think here he's, he's taking just a wee tiny dink at the Corinthians when he tells them about the church at Philippi. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now this for me is a bit cheeky. As he writes to one church and tells them how generous this other church has been. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. 
I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability. And he goes on to speak about the abundant generosity of this Philippian church towards him. Look at that. We sometimes think generosity is something that you do when you've got a whole lot of stuff, when you've got a bit extra, you've got some disposable income, whatever you want to call it. But when Paul writes to the Corinthians about the Philippians, he says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty, it's like a mathematical equation, overflowing joy and extreme poverty come together and well up in rich generosity. That was the nature of this people at Philippi. So today I want to talk a little bit about the concept of rich generosity as that's what Paul is finishing out this letter talking about. He's received a gift from them. He's in prison. They have sent him a financial gift in order to get food and clothes for him while he's in prison. And he's writing this letter back as a response to that. Now, we don't talk about money an awful lot. I think we're a wee bit sometimes hesitant to, to talk about money because we're worried that we might be misunderstood. Jesus talked about money a lot. And in fact, about a quarter of his teaching is about money or possessions. And he wasn't scared to talk about it. But Paul, I sometimes think, is a little bit sheepish about it because he's worried that he'll be misunderstood. You see, in the ancient world, and probably to a certain extent in today's world, if somebody pays you significantly for something or gives something to you, depending on the person, there can then be an element that they own you a little bit because they have so blessed you financially or paid you for a service that you've rendered. And Paul with the Corinthian church would not take money from It's interesting. He did not take it from the Corinthians, and they were angry with him because he wouldn't take it, but he would take it from the Philippian church. And I think the, the point is, Paul knew that the Corinthians, if they give him money, they would want to control him. They would see him as their apostle who would do what they said because they have given money. Whereas the Philippians, Paul trusted that they would not try that on with him. So one of the things he wants to avoid is a sense of, because you've given me money, you can now control me. He doesn't want that. He wants to be free. And another thing as well is he's in a world where you would have had a lot of traveling teachers going from town to town, wisdom teachers. They would have gone. They would have stood in the marketplace. They would have taught people philosophy and all sorts of things. They would have passed around a hat at the end, got some money, and left town before anybody realized that they were crooks. And Paul does not want to look like a crook because he's moving from town to town and place to place, and he does not want to be confused as being one of these people. So that's why he maybe doesn't talk about it quite as much as we might like him to. First thing that I want to say is do not limit generosity to money. Generosity is about more than money. For me, giving time feels like it costs more than giving money. Time for me is a more important commodity than money is. So don't limit generosity to, to money. Time, as I say, is what I say.
is another way that you can be generous. You might not give somebody money. You might not be in a position to give money, but you can give time, and that can mean an awful lot more. Hospitality is another way that we can be generous with our homes, with our gardens, whatever, where we welcome people in and embrace them into family. Expertise is another way we can be generous. Now, if your car is broken down, don't come to me because I don't have any expertise to help you in that area. But if you don't understand chemistry and it's your GCSE exam tomorrow, I can help you. Yes, we use our expertise to bless people. And lots of you here have done that. You have used your expertise. There's a YouTube live stream this morning because Stefan used his expertise to set it up. He gave generously from his expertise. There's a pallet wall behind me in which we take great delight because Aaron used his expertise to put it up. Scott used his expertise in this little blessed cupboard at the back where everything is so neat and so tidy, apart from the one thing that I broke, and everything just works perfectly. And I did tell you about that in case you think I broke something else that happened. Um, we give of our expertise. Jude gives of our expertise with children and with education to, to minister to the kids of the church. So generosity is not just about handing over cash. It, it is a lot of other things as well. Let me just pick a few things out of this text about, about giving and about being generous. First one, giving is good for you. Okay, Giving is good for you. Paul writes, it was good of you, or some translations, it was good for you to share in my troubles. Giving is good. Now, we do this thing in school called PD. It has had lots of different names over the years, but it's that sort of 10-minute lesson that is shoehorned in one morning a week where we do all sorts of random sort of stuff that we get told to do. And sometimes things come down roll your eyes and sometimes things come down the line that you have to do with the kids and they're actually quite good. <laughs> I'm just looking at the, the teenager there to see her response to this. Uh, this one came down the line uh, probably within about the past year and it's actually brilliant, although we've probably talked about too much and annoyed the kids by talking about it too much. So take five steps. Have you, have you encountered this in your travels about Emotional well-being. So these five steps have been suggested as things that we can do to help our emotional well-being and our mental wellness. Uh, and one of them is give. And this is what they say about giving. Do something nice for a friend or a stranger. Thank someone. Smile. Volunteer your time or consider joining a community group. Look out as well as in. Seeing yourself and your happiness linked to the wider community can be incredibly rewarding and will create connections with the people around you. Give. Everybody knows that to give makes you feel good. And whenever things like that come along the line, that's, that's good and it's encouraging and it's good to teach that stuff. But as you're teaching it, you're thinking, we've known this for a long, long time. Right? It's been here in this book that we find, okay? So giving is good for you. It makes you feel good. Now, don't misunderstand this and, and give in order to feel bad with some sort of selfish motive. I'm giving because I want to feel bad. But it is a collateral benefit. If you are generous, 
it feels good. I was chatting to a couple of young men on, on Thursday night and talking to them about just giving, I was challenging them about starting to get involved more with the younger people in the town. So these are guys who are now about 18 or 20 and have been hanging around with us for a while and I'm now saying to them, why don't you start investing a wee bit in the kids that are coming along a bit younger than you? And what I said to them was, you'll feel good. When you fall into bed at night, you'll feel good because you've done something generous. You've given of your time, you've given of your energy for somebody else and it feels good. There's a joy that wells up inside you. Paul talks to the Corinthians about God loving a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. And the, the Greek word there is actually hilaros. And yes, we get the English word hilarious from that. So God loves someone who gives to the point of almost laughing hilariously. They are so overjoyed about being able to give. Giving is good for you. Have you ever given and then come away feeling bad? You always feel good. You never, I've never, when I've, when I've engaged in an act of generosity with time or with money or with anything like that, I've never then turned around afterwards and said, you know what, I wish I hadn't done that. It always feels good. It always just causes joy to well up inside. Giving is good. That's why we should give. Second reason, giving shows the character of God. Now, same verse up here, still Philippians 4.14, but it's that word, good. God is good. And God is not only good, God is generous. And whenever we give generous, we show the character of God to people. We show the character of God. A word that appears a few times in our Bibles about God, and I love it, is the word abundant. Lavish, plentiful, more, more, more. That is God. That is his character. He is an abundant God. And his people should be abundant people. Because we are showing the world what his character is like. So what does our generosity and our giving say about the God who we follow? Is God stingy? Is he tight? Does he give begrudgingly? Does he forget to give? You've probably heard of a, a biblical concept called tithing, which originated in the Old Testament and basically was that people gave a tenth of their income or a tenth of their harvest to God. And it is only mentioned once in the New Testament, and it's actually mentioned in a negative context, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, you give a tenth of your spice, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and faithfulness. You see, these religious guys had taken tithing to the extreme, that they were tithing the very herbs that they grew on their windowsills. And Jesus criticized them for having that attitude towards giving, for nitpicking and working out 10% down to the last leaf on a plant while neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Jesus said you should have done both. And I would suggest to you that tithing is a minimum. 
The New Testament talks about generosity. Generosity. God loves a cheerful giver. And I would suggest to you that tithing, giving 10%, is a sort of baseline that you want to aim for. But lavish generosity is what we're trying to get in the New Testament. Where we are giving and giving and giving as God leads us to give. We're not just working and saying, there you go, God, you're not getting a penny more. That I don't think is in keeping with the character of the New Testament followers of Jesus. As I was thinking about this last night and uh, musing about the web, I found this from Tim Keller regarding tithing. And this, this hit the spot. Jesus did not tithe his blood. He didn't give 10%. He gave it all. He paid it all. Lavish, abundant. For God so loved the world. Not 10% of the world, but the world. He gave it all. And his followers, likewise, should be generous and abundant in their giving. Giving is a partnership. Going back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul talks about their partnership in the gospel. And he also uses a lot of language here in chapter 4 that is from the world of business. He talks about giving and receiving. He talks about being credited to your account. He talks about full payment. It's a partnership together in the gospel. It's not simply a case that they gave Paul a few quid because Paul preached a few sermons for them and they give him payment. That is not what he's talking about. He's talking about a partnership in the gospel where he is pioneering new things. He is establishing new churches and they are providing the finances that help him to do that. They're not paying him for what he does. They are providing him with the resources he needs to see the kingdom come and to see the church built. It's not just a transaction. Paul, you preach five sermons, we're going to give you a lock of pint. It's like, Paul, you've got the drive. You've got the spirit of the pioneer. You want to break new ground and establish new things. We will come alongside you in partnership, and we will resource you so that you can do that. You get the difference. They're not just paying for a service that he's rendered to them. Giving is a partnership in the gospel. And because of your giving, your generosity, Link's Tannery is open. It's fully functional, apart from the fact that what we do, we're replacing the single glazed window with a double glazed window. Sometime, anybody, if you have one knocking about, let us know. Um, but apart from that, it's 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 open, and clients are already in, and, and at the incoming week, there are going to be other counselors also using that. That has been because of your generosity. Yeah, partnership in the gospel that has seen something happen due to your generosity. Now, the problem that I sometimes have, I don't think it's a problem unless, well, my head spins with ideas. There's so much that I want to do. There's so, Linda and I, when we you know, get the, the odd opportunity to go out for breakfast, to, to have an hour together on our own, and just, we did this during the week there, and we spend the time talking about what we want to do. <laughs> There's so much that we want to do. And with the generosity, not only with finances, but with time, there's so much that can be done. 
we want to get that reopened. We want to we just believe that place across the car park is gold for connecting with this town. Not only for connecting with the town, but I read a few great articles during the week about how the church should be providing employment. And by providing employment, that does not mean paying a pastor, paying a youth pastor, all those things are fine. But creating business opportunities in the local community that will then create jobs for local people. Because one of the things that's going to fall out from COVID is you're going to have a lot of unemployment, a lot of youth unemployment. We are aware of plenty of young people around this town that have never worked, they don't go to school, and the, the future does not look very bright. And to have somebody who would entrust them with a wee bit of responsibility and give them a job and a bit of income, that would be good news. That would be gospel for those people. You know? So I, I, we want to see ideas like that. We, we'd love to see stuff like that come into birth. That would really be the church blessing the town if, if a few people were able to get a wee bit of work. We'd love to... Again, we've talked about this for, for a couple of years. We'd love to see a homework club here. This place is sitting all day, every day with the doors closed. We'd love to see it open for a few hours in the afternoon for kids to come in from school. It takes generosity and resources and time. And we are limited in capacity, but I do believe that we are gaining momentum and we will start to see the capacity come that will allow these things to happen. Paul was a pioneer and the people partnered with him so these things could take place. We'd love to see community meetings again. For years this has been something. We'd love to have a, a, a night a week that there's just a meal on and anybody can come and sit at a table and eat lonely people. Try a meal together. We'd love to see a, a, a firmer connection built up with food bank. The local kids getting blessed down the park, whatever. Even the younger ones getting involved in stuff and giving of our resources, our time. There's lots that, that, that can be done. And it requires partnership in the gospel. And I'm thankful for it. And I believe it will increase. When you give, you're giving to God. You're giving to God. Paul uses the language, if you look at Philippians 4.18, that the gift he received from the Philippians via Epaphroditus, he says that gift is a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. It's Old Testament temple language whenever the burnt offering was said to be a sweet aroma to God. Now, I don't really think God likes the smell of a burnt offering. I think it's more that he smells the heart, the character of the person bringing the offering. That is a pleasing aroma to him. And whenever we give, on the one hand, you're thinking, well, I'm giving my time to this person, or I'm giving my finances to this charity or this person, but hold alongside that, I'm giving to God. This is a pleasing sacrifice to God. And we need to be careful, I think, in Christian circles that we do not take that act of worship away from people. Giving is an act of worship. And if we create a culture in the church that you only give when you're getting entertained at a concert, or you only give when you're going to a fundraising barbecue, or you, you only give when there's a transaction taking place and you're getting something in return, all those things are fine and they make sense for raising funds. 
But there has to be a place for just sacrificial giving because it's an act of worship. Giving you shall receive. Nearly done. The more you give, and this could be understood, the more you give, the more you get. Now, I hate the prosperity gospel. I hate it. The idea that we give to God and then sit and wait for God to give us back a Ferrari. You know, I hate it. But in this context, and you've got to get the context. In this context, Paul says in verse 17, I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. In other words, he says to the Philippians, you have given. I want to see putting something into your account. But don't get that muddled up in your head that that is then for us to use on our own desires. It's God giving so that we can give more. It's not me giving a little bit so that God can give me something so I can go and buy whatever I want. It is God giving more to those who have already a track record of supporting the gospel. That's what it's about. And in this, this whole area of friendship, as I mentioned earlier, once you've received a gift from somebody, the ball was in your court, and you were expected to reciprocate and to bless that person as well when they were in need. And the problem with Paul is he can't do that because he's in prison. And he doesn't have any money. So he's received this gift from his friends, but he's in a tight spot. He's like, right now I need to reciprocate. I'm expected to reciprocate. It's just a big word meaning to return the favor, but I can't do it. And look what he says. He says, God's going to do it. Look that. You've given to me. I can't respond in kind, but my God will meet all your needs according to his riches or the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Whenever you give, God then returns to you so that you can give more. Not so you can be selfish, not so you spend it on your own desires, but so that you can give more. He entrusts with more. Again, in the Corinthian letter, the second Corinthian letter, it says you'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. God will give to you so that you can bless others. And you know what? Peace and a great sort of security in having a lifestyle of giving generously. Because whenever you find yourself in a tight spot, you can trust that God will meet your needs. Because he has seen you meet the needs of others. And whenever things get difficult or things get tight, you don't find yourself panicking, thinking the wheels are going to come off the wagon here. You find yourself in a place of trust. I know that I've been faithful. Paul would say, and this is the lifestyle you have. I know, we know that we have been faithful, that we've been generous. Now things are tight. We know we have a God who will meet all our needs. It's a beautiful way to live. And manage your finances. It's a beautiful way. And trust God. And I can tell you, there, there are times we've been in plenty and there's times we've been in want. God has always, always, always delivered. Always. He is so faithful. 
and I would encourage you, especially if you're young, develop a life of generosity when you're young. Because I think if you're just to suddenly start trying to do it when you're a bit older, it'd be a lot harder to do. Do it when you're young. Do it when there's not a huge amount of money in the pot. Because it's easier to give a small amount than it is to give a big amount. But it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to come into the presence of God and just say, God, I'm in need. I trust you. You've seen. And he comes through. It's class. The end of the letter then. And Paul has been sitting on this the whole time. He just... I think he's had something up his sleeve that he's just been waiting and waiting and waiting to put it down. He says in 421, Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus, the brothers and sisters who are with me, send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. And you're like, what? <laughs> Hang on. Imagine you're in you're in Lydia's house and you're all sitting all over the place, you know, in the windowsills and on the edges of the sofa and in the corner. You're all over the house and Epaphroditus is reading the letter that he's brought back from Paul and, and Paul's doing his usual thing and everybody's probably starting to nod off at the end whenever the list of names is coming. All the people who say hello and say hello to him and he says hello and she says hello. And they hear that they're receiving greetings from God's people in Caesar's household. You see, you take Paul and you stick him in prison, people are going to get born again in prison. Because the gospel, and if you'll pardon, this is not meant to be a, a, a bad sort of play on words. It's a word that's been used a lot lately in the last 10, 20 years. And some of the, the books that I've been reading, the Greek is viral. It's contagious. If you take somebody like Paul, who's got the gospel, and they've got Jesus, and they're filled with the Spirit, and you put them in prison, your prison is going to fall apart because people are going to start getting born again. It happened in Philippi right at the start, whenever Paul and Silas were in the stocks that night, and the prison shook. And right now, Paul is in prison, likely in Rome, possibly in Ephesus, but highly likely that he's in Rome. And some of Caesar's own family are getting saved. Because Paul's in prison in Rome. Don't run away from your hardships. Because frequently it's in those places of crushing and hardship that people see the character of God in you more clearly than any other time. And I'm sure Paul had a twinkle in his eye as he wrote that down. Greetings from the Christians in Caesar's family. The gospel is contagious. And wherever we are and wherever we find ourselves, it should be just, we should be sneezing the gospel, okay? We should be coughing the gospel, filling the air with it. I think about my own job, and for four years I'll have kids in my classroom pretty much every day. And I'll try to be a professional and give them a good education and prepare them for exams to get a good grade. But I think the best thing anyone could say after those four years is I was in his class every day for four years. 
And I know he's a follower of Jesus. And Jesus must be good. It is, it is our character in the places that we find ourselves, not just Sunday morning, and probably Sunday morning as well, low down on the, on the list. It is who we are in our jobs, in our families, in our trials and traumatic times in life. It is who we are then that shows people what Jesus is like. And I just think it is, it's, it's, it's Jesus spitting in the devil's eye when Paul goes into prison. And again, I can imagine Jesus just saying, you <laughs> You just wait really you see what happens down there because the gospel is now going into the heart of our into the heart of Caesar's own family because you broke it. And that's it. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter. Thank you for Paul writing it, for your church preserving it through the ages, Lord. We praise you. We thank you for what we have learned, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us the ability to remember what we have seen in this letter. And in light of today's content, Father, I pray that you would make us a generous people, generous with our time, generous with our money, generous with our expertise, our skills, generous, overflowing. That 10% would just never be enough, Lord, that it would be a baseline to work from, but it wouldn't be enough, Lord. Make us hilarious, cheerful givers who derive tremendous joy from blessing others. Make this church a blessed community of blessers in this time, Lord. Help us to overflow. Help us to show how good you are and how we treat the community around us, Lord. We love you, we praise you. Amen.